0: Hello, welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, I speak to the inspirational Deborah Alcock Tyler, CEO of Directory of Social Change and trustee of both Berkshire Community Foundation and in-kind direct. Currently, the COVID-19 pandemic continues to rage with hope that we will be coming out of lockdown in the next few weeks, but anxiety about what the world will look like and how life will change. For charities, many of which have been working harder than ever over the past few weeks, the anxiety for their trustees might mean big decisions over the coming weeks and months. So it's absolutely vital that those on the front line of charities as well as the senior management teams have clear lines of communication with those making the strategic decisions the trustees this is what Deborah and I speak about now there is an occasional beep on the recording apologies for this it was part of the running of the computers that, uh, that we were using during the chat but it's uh, fairly inconsequential I think only a couple of beeps so please try and ignore those this is a really interesting topic, so and vital topic. So do sit back and enjoy our charity chat with Deborah Orcock- Tyler..
1: So welcome to Charity Chat. I'm delighted to be uh, joined today by Deborah Orcock Tyler, CEO of the Directory of Social Change. And trustee of Berkshire Community Foundation and In Kind Direct. Welcome, Deborah, to the show. Morning, Sam. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be here, too. And uh, thanks, for, thanks for joining us. I know you're really busy at the moment. How, how, are, you, um, how are you and your team finding uh, the coronavirus crisis, and, and uh, how are you coping?
2: Well, do you know, it's funny when I just say it's a real pleasure to be here, of course, here is <laughs> sat at my dining room table in front of my laptop, which is where here always is for most of us at the moment. And I think actually that's, that's the only way you can look at it when really. you have to try and find humour in the fact that you're there. I think we're doing OK. I think, you know, it, I have um, almost 70 percent of my staff are furloughed and the rest are at work. And oh. I actually think that the, the, fur, the furloughed staff find it harder. Than the non-furloughed staff because of course the thing is with the people who are who are able to be at work they've got a sense of agency they've got some control they know what it is we're doing to try and save dsc and the work that we're doing to try and save the sector whereas with people on furlough feel much more disoriented and disembodied from it so but you know i think that my lot are very pragmatic very phlegmatic people and just chin up and get on with it really so i'm incredibly proud of them it isn't easy but we're surviving and we're still here
0: and have you got things in place to
1: kind of check on each other's well-being, those people that are still working?
2: Yes, we do. So we have morning check-in. So at 9.30 in the morning, everybody checks in and that's officially when they start work. Of course, you know, people get their computers early than that. But we say the official working day for our skeleton crew, as we call them, is on a, is at 9.30. And then we all um, meet again at five o'clock on... Um, uh, yeah, on zoom are both of those so we say so that's officially the end of the day So I'm trying to give them structure the day which says start at 9:30, finish at 5 if people then choose to do differently That's fine because lots of hours have got kids and stuff and they've got to flex their working hours but At least it gives them some kind of formal structure to the day And what we also did is very quickly we realized that people were working too hard and so what we've now done is we've, institu- we've instituted a f- uh, four-day week So now everybody apart from me does a four day week and we have a Friday crew and a Monday crew. So some people, half of the team do a Friday and half the team do a Monday. And so that everybody gets a good three days break from work as much as they possibly can. And actually, it's quite good fun because the Friday crew and the Monday crew have become a bit competitive with each other. So any little bit of income that's coming into DSC gets claimed by a Friday crew or Monday crew. Like, how did they do on Friday? Did we beat them? You know, so there's a little bit of like, you know, quite fun competitiveness coming in. So there's all of that. And then also my managers are ringing our furloughed staff regularly just to see how they are checking. And we encourage them all to, you know, talk to each other and do WhatsApp groups and things like that and Zoom parties. And then also on a Wednesday at 11 o'clock every Wednesday, we have the whole organisation, furloughed and unfurloughed, come together and we do a big Zoom meeting with everybody where we talk about, I brief them what's been happening at DSC, what's working, what's not working, the wider sector and so forth. So we're doing as much as we can.
1: Deborah, you're you're Chief Executive and a trustee yourself. So as both the trustee and Chief Executive, what are trustees likely to be fearing at the moment? And what can charity chief executives and senior staff do to address these fears?
2: Yeah, well, you know, the advice I, well, first and foremost, I always say to chief executives, please become a trustee. You will be a better chief executive if you know what it's like from the other side. And the the reality is, is actually it's not that difficult to get it right with trustees if you just imagine what would what would I want to know if I was a trustee and I was a legally accountable person for this organisation, but I wasn't actually physically running it, what is the information that I would need and then and then it will come flooding at you. It's so straightforward. I mean, first and foremost, right now, money is probably at the forefront. Typically, though, what what trustees mostly care about is beneficiaries. So one of the first things they're going to want to know is how are we serving our beneficiaries? Who's suffering as a result of what's going on at the moment? What what are we doing to help them? But of course, a really key thing, because that's where the liability sets in, is um, this issue about finances, funding, where's the money coming and things from that. And I think this is about being completely honest with trustees telling them the absolute truth, not trying to pretend it looks better or it looks worse. If there was ever a time when it's okay to be honest and you can't be in trouble, because nobody's gonna turn around and say you were crap if your charity fails right now, because you know some of the best charities we've seen operating are in really serious financial difficulty. So it's got nothing to do with how well run you are, and a lot to do with the environment in which we're in. So, being absolutely honest, and also, I would say the other things we tend to we tend to drown trustees in detail, like loads of figures and numbers and things like that. And I personally think that's really unhelpful. I think the more detail you give, the harder it is for them to get a proper picture of what's going on. So, it's not to say the detail shouldn't be available and they shouldn't have access to it and look at it if they need to. But I would be saying, you know, present your present your financial information as simply as you possibly can, preferably graphically you know in line graphs and bar charts so they've got a picture in their heads of how things are going and also don't just stop at where you are right now it's also about thinking yes we know the times are challenging now and you know probably your income line's done you know gone like slashing down to the right and whereas your expenditure has probably stayed about the same or maybe declined a bit think slightly beyond this so what's it what might it look like when things get back to normal in october november december etc 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 so I would say being really honest presenting information graphically and then also finally understanding their fear you know their fear is it's not personal fear it's the fear of you know we care about this charity we care about these beneficiaries we don't want it to fail and like and to understand that when they seem a bit difficult or they get a bit snicky about you know a particular piece of information to try not to take it personally or as a criticism many trustees right now feel completely helpless like literally helpless and also they're worrying about their own organisations very often, you know, whether they're in private sector or in public sector or in charities themselves. So helping them to feel that they've got the right information, I think, is the most critical thing.
1: In, in previous conversations we've had with other contributors, um, there's been a suggestion that in some cases, probably not in all cases, because as you say, a lot of trustees will have businesses or be um, chief executives like you are, Um, but in some cases trustees may have more time now than they've had in the past if they're in in lockdown, so is is that a a part of the thinking that chief executives need to have about maybe giving people or trustees something else they can do to help the organisation?
2: I, I well I'm not sure that's true that they have got more time so I'd be interested to see where the data is I mean that's certainly not my experience with my own trustees nor with my fellow trustees in my the charities where I'm a trustee most of them have businesses they're still trying to run or charities they're still trying to run lots of them may have kids or caring responsibilities at home and in fact actually if anything people with kids find that they're having less time because they're trying to manage their you know so I it, it's definitely not my experience that trustees have more time In fact, I would be inclined to assume that they don't actually, and be really, really focused on the information that you give them and keep it really sort of clear and simple. Um, And the other thing I would say as well is like regular communication. Like you need to be emailing your trustees at least once a week, at least once a week, with a quick catch up on what's going on. At DSC, we, my board has set up um, a COVID-19 working group. So they, they, the board has nominated three trustees to form this group and we meet on a Wednesday, every Wednesday at three o'clock, for no more than 45 minutes. It's chaired by our vice chair. Um, so our chair has delegated this particular group. And that's where we give them the day by day, here we are with the cash here we are with what might be happening with income, here we are with the people we're trying to serve, here's what's happening in the wider sector, and it's no more than 45 minutes. And then we minute that, and then the vice chair then sends a note round to the rest of the board saying, we've met, this is what we've done, and so forth. So we try and minimise the amount of time that our trustees have got to spend, because we know they're also busy trying to save their charities or their businesses. So I'd say actually the opposite, busier.
0: And, and are
1: these, are these initiatives, the, the 45 minute meeting and the, yes. the um, emails and things like that, and the committee, have, have they come from, um, from you and your leadership team? Or have they partly come from the trustees? How did that come about?
2: A bit of both, to be honest. It's like we're very, I, I mean, I may have been at DSC nearly 20 years as the chief exec, but I'm very, very conscious it's not my charity. It belongs to the trustees. So I instill in my team very much this, we are looking after these charities for, for the trustees. And so they're, them having the right information and you know, knowing what's going on is, is the absolute priority. So given this crisis, what can we do? And that's when we thought, well, shall we have a working group? And then when we spoke to the trustees about it, they thought it was a great idea as well. So it's kind of, it's kind of organic.
1: And, and as, a, as a trustee yourself, are you experiencing similar things in the charities that you're a trustee of? Um, It sounds like DSC have got kind of a really good approach to uh, to managing enterprises with their trust.
2: Well, you'd expect us to, given that, you know, we tell other people how to run themselves efficiently, effectively. So you'd expect us to be pretty good at doing it. And also, don't forget that, you know, I know quite a bit about governance and... Um, in fact, my book, which is slightly on hold at the moment, but it's just in its last stages of editing, which is, it's a battle on the board, which is due to come out in the autumn, but obviously we've had to halt it. So that's all about how to run yourself as, a, as well as a charity, as trustees, sorry, in a charity. Um, they keep regular, so they're, they're so in Kindred and Barch Community Foundation, it tends to be more by email. So we've, we've had full board meetings in both of those charities because they all happen to fall at about the same sort of time in April, ironically. Um, but we haven't had, I don't, there isn't a working group for any of those. Um, although I know our chair in Inkind Direct works very closely with our chief executive, Ditto. Our chair at Barch Community Foundation is working very closely with our chief executive. Um, but the thing about, so a Barch Community Foundation is a grant-giving charity anyway. So it's not quite the same as if it's a charity that's about to go bust or run that business. So it's a much more comfortable place to be in. And with in Direct, because we're redistributing surplus product lots of our donors are really really being incredibly supportive so we're getting more product to donate, and now cash is coming with that so I I, you don't feel quite the same need whereas with DSC it's in a bit more of a vulnerable position which is my why my DSC trustees probably need more updating and more of a working group than I would feel the need for in my other two so I'm content with the way the others are doing it
0: So
1: you talked about a little bit so the the approach DSC has with uh, mental health your team and um, both yeah. those on furlough and those still working um, sounds really really solid um, what what advice maybe would you give to um, chief executives and other and senior staff of organizations in terms of how they deal with delivering for beneficiaries and also for the mental health of their teams yeah. and reflecting that with the trustees and, and communicating that to the trustees?
2: You know, it's a really, this is a really interesting one because here's the thing, these are not normal times. So the kinds of things you'd normally say to people, like you mustn't overwork, you mustn't do this, you must rest, etc. it's just not realistic, especially when you're serving a group of vulnerable people you're passionate about. So I think we have to get there. Our staff want to put the work in. They want to put the hours in. It matters to them. It's not as if they're being forced to do... Well, they kind of are by the circumstances, but most, most of the, the people I know who are working for charities or serving on the front line, they're not being forced to do these things. They're doing it because they care and they really want to do it. And I think that the worst thing you can do is, is limit that love and compassion and energy for this period now. So I think at the moment, if provided you're doing the normal stuff like, are you okay, do you need any help, are you looking after yourself well, is enough, actually, Other than those you know, where it's sensitive, let people do their bit now. Let them put in the extra hours. Let them be tired. Let them be afraid. Let them cry. Let them have all those things happen. The key thing is actually going to be when things start to get back to normal, which they will. I know it feels like the world has changed forever. It's never going to be the same again. Nobody's ever going to be able to hug each other for the next 400 years, and nobody will work in offices. That's a load of old bollocks. We will. You know, it's going to, in fact, in a year's time, we'll, we'll vaguely remember this, to be honest. I think all this thing the world has completely changed is nonsense. But there is going to be a transition period when people are coming back in the workplace. And that's when people are going to start to fall to bits. And that's when you need to put the, the stuff in place. It's a bit like it's something it's not quite the grief thing. But you know it's the pattern of that you have that that period of intense like activity and like ew and then all of a sudden things when things get a little bit flat, that's when all the emotion, all the challenges come rushing through. So I think for the moment, allow people to shine and to loads of praise. You know, you're doing fantastically. Please look after yourself, let me know what I can do to help. But really, it's thinking now about what are you going to do? How are you going to spot the signs of people in burnout or you know, or in loss or in grief. Because actually the other thing to remember about this period of time is we're all of us worrying about our family, you know, worrying about our jobs, worrying about our organisations, worrying about the jobs of our family and things like that. Like the stresses at the moment are unbelievably high. But the interesting thing is, is when they are unbelievably high, that's often when people can really step up. It's when those stresses go away that the problems I think will probably set in. However, you know, I, although I do have a degree in psychology, I'm not a qualified therapist or anything like that, but that's, that would be what I, my advice would be.
1: What about trustees? Do, do chief executives and senior teams do they have a responsibility to their trustees' mental well-being? Do you think is there anything that that you can do, kind of, kind of, in terms of managing up to to help trustees' mental health?
2: Uh, well, a hu- you have a human responsibility. I think again, I talk I talk about how you see your organisation. I am looking after DSC for my trustees. Our chief executive at Berkshire Community Foundation is looking after BCF for us as trustees. And so therefore, of course, from a human level, you need to think, because you want your trustees to be healthy and well in their heads, so they're making good decisions. Of course, of course. But I think it's more from a human perspective than a formal one. So it is about saying, you know, because at the moment, most trustees are more worried about your health and mental wellbeing than they are about their own. But it is about saying to them, is everybody okay? Do you need anything? But it's really focusing on, you know, am I giving you the right sort of information? I don't want to add to your stress by not getting it right, you know, the information I'm giving you from my charity. Do
1: you think the current coronavirus crisis that charities are facing is likely to change how charity governance uh, works in the future?
2: It's really hard to tell, I mean, I'll tell you what my hope is. My real hope is that charities are operating at the moment on the edge of a precipice of risk. And my hope is that trustees going forward will realise that risk is okay, and they ought to be taking risks and they've got to stop being so careful. Because actually the reality is reserves aren't really out to anybody, you know, because those organisations that are able to access their reserves, which is not that many because most reserves aren't liquid anyway, uh, they're going to run out of those at some point and then they'll be right back to square one. So I really hope that it makes trustees bolder and braver. I certainly think if you think about the wider context of how overlooked and undervalued our sector has been by the government, I mean, if there was ever, ever, not just a slap in the face, it's like, you know, that, well that sketch with the fish around the head you know that's what we've been slapped with by this government like they really don't care and they don't get it and I really hope that gets trustees to start being braver and bolder, on campaigning more and lobbying more and be angrier about the circumstances that lead to their, trust, their beneficiaries getting there so I hope they'll be more take more risks um I think that uh, probably a lot of them will come out of it reflecting on governance and I really really hope that they start taking the governance code seriously and start thinking about how they can use that more effectively and so forth but when when things have calmed down a bit i'm pretty sure most trustees will say right now let's reflect what have we learned what can we do differently what we can do better so i think it will i i think it will probably it'll be tighter for a bit and i hope they take more risks but then my darling normal human beings become normal human beings and as soon as we can settle things back to normal i don't know if you've ever had a a, you know a a near-death experience but when you've had one of those, immediately afterwards, you're full of, I will appreciate every moment of my life. I am never taking my mother for granted ever again. It lasts about six months, and then you're rapidly back to normal and she's driving you mad, you know? And then there will absolutely be an element of this when we come out of, when we come out of all of this.
1: Do you think there might be any change in how the government sees charities Um, obviously governments change but the current government seeing the the optimist in me thinks you know all the great work that charities are doing and then that's um in conflict with the um small amount of money that was donated by the government to support charities
2: honestly not with this government and this isn't a political thing you know i mean there have been other governments of other persuasions that i don't think have been convinced by the value of the sector but this particular government no because if they saw the value they'd be doing more you know, what they've, what they've offered. I, 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 I don't think it's lack of care. Well, I think in some cases it's lack of care, but I think mostly it's complete lack of understanding. They just do not understand, you know, the value of the, uh, of the sector, not just to the social economy, but to the fiscal economy. I mean, if charities weren't there to pick up the pieces, to run the food banks, to provide the counselling, the mental health support, to rescue the abused kids, to, to house them, to home them, to feed them, to, to teach them, the government would have to pick that up and that's billions and billions of pounds worth of money that the government would have to charge the taxpayer. so you know I think they just literally don't understand it or or they do but they don't want to stir this the sleeping horse it's so much better to just you know because I think maybe they get that charities never run away so when charities don't have any money you might close down but you don't stop fighting for the cause do you know what I mean? And that's the difference between a private sector company, whereas if there's no profit in it, naturally they close the business down because why would you run a business that's making a loss, you know? Whereas in the charitable sector, you know, the work is there whether the money's there or not. So people will always, always, always be helping, holding each other up. So no, I don't think this government will. What I do, however, hope is that the opposition might see, might start to come and understand a little more forensically how our how our sector works and might therefore carry that forward with them in both into opposition and then you know um, in the future so yeah and it's not a political point particularly I think you know you've only got to look at the action 750 million I mean it's ridiculous it's
1: it's laughable well, far less than the billion that it's said to be uh, the sector would be losing well that
2: and that was just 12 weeks Sam yeah. that was just three months worth of m- income that's going to be lost to the sector you know never mind when we get to the end of June so that was like March April May when we get to June And all of a sudden, we're still not getting the income coming in because of fundraising. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Listen, charities survive. Governments, wars, you know, depression. I mean, you name it. The charitable sector is indomitable. Individual charities might go down. But I don't know if you've noticed, but the charity register is really stable, Sam. There are around about 160,000, 168,000 pending charities every year. They have been for decades and there will be for decades to come because when a charity dies, a new one springs up. This is what always makes me laugh about mergers when I say, Come on, let's merge. In my experience, when the charity merges, a few years later, a little charity pops up to replace the one that merged with the other charity because people don't like to, you know, I, you, you, see it, you see it in the blind sector. <laughs> we went through a whole series of mergers quite a few years ago where loads of blind charities merged like mad. We don't have fewer blind charities now, I don't think, because all the hands is little ones pop up and they say, Well, I'm not happy with that big charity the way they do it. I want this charity.
1: So, so yeah, ninety it, percent like of charities raise less than five hundred thousand pounds a year, or ninety-five percent, I think, ninety percent. Yeah, it's over. Yeah,
2: it is. It's over 97 percent. I think it is. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a very, very high proportion. Yeah.
1: Well, my final question is furloughing. So you've furloughed 70% of staff. Do you have a view on this notion that I think it's been turned down now by uh, Baroness uh, Ferran, the Minister of Civil Society, allowing uh, charity workers to volunteer for their organisations? It's
2: absolutely yeah it's ridiculous ridiculous now listen in the case of dsc fair enough we're not frontline we serve other charities and the reality is is that we've had to furlough our stuff as there's literally no income coming in and if we're not if, about which means people aren't buying our books or coming on our courses for obvious reasons so therefore there literally isn't any work for them to do but for the vast majority of charities have furloughed work have furloughed, there is work for them to do there are still homeless people who need help homing and counselling and caring for and sorting out there are still people with addictions who need you know support there are still older people with care responsibilities who need help it's absolutely nuts that you cannot allow your staff to carry on doing the vital work because you're you're afraid that we're going to default you and even if that was the case surely surely that risk is an acceptable risk Surely, if you care about the people in this country who are vulnerable and in need, it's worth risking the fact that somebody might take the piss and claim furloughed workers when they're not, you know what I mean? It's just this complete, and it's also the absolute cheek of comparing us to business. I mean, you know, I've said this before. The thing about business is, if there's no income, there's no work, typically. Mm. But in charities, there is always work. Sometimes there is income. You know, there are always people who are hungry, always people who are poor, always people who are suicidal or depressed, always kids with disabilities, always people with mental health issues. They they always exist, whether we have the money or not. So to compare us, like Oliver Dowden and Diana Barron did, when they both said we can't save every business just like we can't save every charity, is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard said and quite clearly demonstrates to me a profound lack of understanding of the very nature of voluntary endeavour and the world of charities.
1: Deborah Alcock Tyler, thank you for contributing to Charity Church.
2: You're very welcome, Sam, and good luck. I've thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: A big thank you there to Deborah Alcock Tyler for giving us both her time and valuable first hand knowledge and insights into the minds of both trustees and chief executives of charities. Deborah raised a number of vital points here. I know that in some cases, certainly uh, within my experience, there's a real difference between the exposure that charity workers get to their trustees, depending on the culture or size of their charity. But wherever you are, um, wherever you work or volunteer, it's so important that we do remember that trustees are responsible for the successes and failures of the charities they govern. So we must put ourselves in their shoes and think hard about how we can provide them with the most effective information possible. It might seem difficult sometimes to allocate enough time to reporting mechanisms, especially during unprecedented times of need. But if these mechanisms are too complex, they need to be changed. They should surely remain in place. And perhaps there is a shared responsibility for senior managers to bring their colleagues in to understand the wider organisational picture as much as the duty of detailing this for trustees to make their decisions. To get everyone on the same page and shared understanding surely must be any charity's overriding goal for success. Of course, the furloughing of charity staff, while consistent with other sectors, is perhaps counterintuitive especially with the shortfall in fundraising over the last few months and uh, now charities are having to work harder with less and in many cases less staff so perhaps we will look back on this time as a starting point for a new era perhaps the bang of the drum of charities will get louder the work that we all do that no one else does the gaps in some cases, very big gaps that we fill in order to protect and serve those who are most vulnerable in our society. So keep on fighting that good fight, dear listener, against all those odds. There is light at the end of the tunnel. And if you are going through hell, for goodness sake, keep going. If you enjoyed this episode, please do listen out for more from Deborah Alcock-Tyler or check out her many books We've got lots more shows coming up uh, about the uh, current situation and how to deal with it, so do keep listening. Uh, That's it from me. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this helpful. Please do let us know what you thought, good and bad. We'd love to hear from you. Um, You can email charitychatpodcast at gmail.com or visit our website, charitychat.org.uk, for more information about us and uh, leave a message on there. Uh, Also, uh, thank you to our corporate sponsors. Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Axmit for the beautiful website design, charitychat.org.uk. Yard Photography for the lovely pro bono images on the website and Forrester Fools who have been playing throughout the show and are playing us out right now. We hope that you and yours are staying safe and well. Thanks very much. Cheerio. Speak to you soon. Bye bye.